0: Really asking for and asking tough questions. <coughs>
1: does poverty drive inequality, or does inequality drive poverty? Sure.
0: Women just were not able to reach
2: out and to look for support.
1: We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to
0: debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world
2: to work together for a common
1: goal. Hello and welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Andrew Trimble, the washed up rugby player. I'm my depth here. Today we're talking about climate change. I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field. Saif O'Neill, policy coordinator for Stop Climate Chaos, a coalition of organizations campaigning to ensure Ireland does its fair share to tackle the causes and consequences of climate change. Sive was involved in Climate Case Ireland, a legal action taken by Friends of the Irish Environment. It was the first case in Ireland in which citizens were seeking to hold their government accountable for its role in contributing to climate change. In June 2020, the group took the Irish government to the Supreme Court and won. So you're a hero, Sive. Welcome to the podcast.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just to let you know, folks, that since we spoke, Sive O'Neill is lecturing in climate policy at DCU. We wish her all the best with that. And as always, just a quick reminder, folks, some of our guests are joining us from other parts of the world. So the connection and sound quality can be a little bit of an issue at times. Also joining me today is Nafkote Dabi, Climate Change Policy Lead for Oxfam International. In the past, Nafkote has also worked in Oxfam's Humanitarian Response and Emergency Food Security. So she's got first-hand knowledge of how climate change is impacting people's lives around the world. Uh, Welcome, Naf and Saif. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Lovely to be here.
1: It's great to have you both on board. Otherwise, I would just be here. Talking about rugby and no one wants to hear that. Let's start by talking more broadly about climate change, if that's okay. And just based on what we've seen over the last number of years, climate change is not some far-off event for our children and grandchildren to worry about. It's it's happening right now, Sai.
0: Absolutely. Climate change isn't one event, it's it's that it increases the frequency of extreme weather events. And you know, whether that's excess heat or excess drought and wildfires or excess rain and storms and flooding that go with that. So I think it's a wake-up call, but we need to accept, as I read this morning, that this is not so much a new normal. It's an end of normal. And that's the scary part. It's the idea that the weather will be a lot more unpredictable, and that's going to require us to face into some very serious Conversations at a global level about food security, about migration, and uh, about displaced communities all over the world who need to escape these new climates that are simply not habitable for people anymore. I read one article, for example, yesterday, which was highlighting that there are five major cities in the United States that will not be habitable in the future. And that's just the United States, never mind the drought prone areas in the Middle East, in Pakistan, and many other countries whose fate is a lot less widely reported so definitely we have some serious talking to do
1: um now how, how soon in the future really everything's just happening now and this is not something that's that's on down the line
2: i think science has said it really well we're seeing the impact in canada or you know in north america when it comes to like the recent heat wave we're talking about rich countries they have the capacity to withstand shocks or at least you know, uh, to adapt to what's coming. So these events, especially you know, the one that happened in Canada, they said it was supposed to be uh, you know, once in a 1,000 years, but now this is going to happen maybe uh, once every 20 years or once every 30 years, that's really shocking. So if that's what's going to happen or if that's going to be the forecast, I can't imagine what's going to happen, you know, in in, in Africa. A continent that's already impacted, IPCC or you know, like the scientists have also been saying, these are some of the areas highly impacted. And as I has said, things are going to be unpredictable. But already, these communities are impacted. And if if the forecast for Canada is going to be like this, I can't imagine what's going to happen to Africa. And then in Latin America, communities are impacted. Communities are displaced because of the climate crisis. Or in the Pacific. So how are they going to adapt to the changing climate? Already they're struggling and things are also beyond adaptation. There are a lot of issues, you know, like the sea level rise, displacing communities in the Pacific. And yes, communities are trying really hard to adapt this situation, but it's already, you know, somehow out of their control and they don't have the capacity. We're talking about either technical capacity or financial capacity. This is really worrisome. And I feel like the science is clear. Everything is clear. Everyone knows, you know, what needs to happen. And we don't know why that's not happening to prevent this thing from getting out of control.
1: Is it as simple as that? Is it as, as simple as wealthy countries aren't, aren't contributing as much as they can because they won't pay as high a price or they can cope with the difficulties. What, what's the solution then in, in, in countries that, that may not have the wealth to be able to cope with some of this? How do we tackle this? Is there a solution, inside?
0: Well, I, th- I think the the international politics of climate change has been far too slow. And it has obviously been um, affected at the nation state level by some states' addiction to fossil fuels, support for fossil fuels, and even ownership of the fossil fuel industry in the case of some major exporting nations. You can Obviously, think of Saudi Arabia. And the way that international politics works is it's important to remember we don't have a world government. We don't have an elected body of people that are accountable to the global citizens. Um, It is a case of governments coming together and trying to forge a consensus. And what happened was that um, after the Kyoto Protocol, um, after many, many years of negotiations, delivered just a tiny reduction in global emissions 5% average global emissions reduction. After all of that, Uh, it was realized, uh, and especially after the Copenhagen uh, debacle, that the world needed uh, a different approach to climate action. And that led to the evolution of the Paris Agreement, which is based on the principle that every state must do its level best to contribute to achieving the global um, goal, if you like, of limiting global warming to two degrees and pursuing 1.5. But it was very much in the lap of individual countries as to how much they were going to offer to do and how they were even going to measure uh, climate action. So there wasn't any kind of top-down limit on global emissions. So scientists very quickly went about working out, well, what is the global Carbon budget that matches that temperature increase, because it's possible to work that out, give or take a few million gigatons here and there. But um, it is possible to work that out. And it's possible then to work out what a fair distribution would look like. But there is nothing written in international law to say how that distribution should be acted upon in practice by nation states. So basically, what we've seen is a very incremental approach, Uh, some countries doing more than others. You've seen the European Union you know, trying to do its bit, but even its contribution is well below what the European Union should be doing if it was doing its fair share of mitigation. When you think about all the emissions that have been pumped into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution, which was led by European countries, the UK, Germany, France, and so on. So really, um, the European Union is also now a smaller share of global emissions. So the big emitters are China, Brazil, the United States, and so on and South Africa. And these countries um, are locked into a fossil-based development model. And it's very difficult to constrain that. And it's very difficult to constrain it when emissions are still rising from everywhere else at the same time. So I think it's fair to say that while the Paris Agreement is still our best shot because there is a consensus, it is not working to solve the problem. And one of the main reasons for that is that developing countries have no reason to step up their own climate ambitions when none of the climate finance or very small portion of it that was promised in the Paris Agreement has actually been delivered. And much of it is tied to mitigation projects or carbon markets and things like that, as opposed to adaptation and the kind of development goals that um, they want to pursue. So even though we talk about the Paris Agreement and it's good to talk it up, I think we're looking at failure, and that's the reality. We're looking at failure because the only thing that counts as success is when emissions come down to zero uh, by the middle of the century. That's what the scientists are telling us, and we are not on track. And in fact, today I read that its uh, emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level by 2023. So they're going in the wrong direction, and I don't see what the global response to that is going to be.
1: So the, the Paris Agreement, it was updated in 2015. As you're saying there, it, it seemed to be a step in the right direction, but there's no accountability. Does that need to be completely reshaped, challenged, even a new agreement? Or is this agreement just always going to end up, you know, it's, it's going to, as you say, it's going to be failure. Is there any hope? Is there any chance that we can turn things around and fix things? I'm hoping there's going to be some <laughs> some positive spin in this side.
0: Yeah, well, I want to hear what that has to say. But just to conclude, really, like, yes, the the picture is bleak. And I think we need to be very honest with ourselves about that because we are not doing ourselves any favours if we pretend that the little bits of things that we are doing are going to be enough. The only thing that's going to address the problem is if there's a global effort to reduce emissions dramatically in the next decade and couple of decades. And that is going to require a wholesale shift in policies. It's going to require that we retire the fossil fuel industry, stop extracting fossil fuels, stop burning fossil fuels. And that is going to require a dramatic kind of technological shift if we are, you know, going to continue to use energy at all. So, There are some welcome signs that, you know, that that technological shift is happening. It just needs to be happening on a different scale. It has to be happening faster and it has to be happening in a way that allows developing countries to access the technology without having to pay for expensive patents or relying on aid and so on and so forth to come trickling in very slowly. So over to you, (laughs) Naf.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree with with what you said, but I just wanted to mention, you know, once that really disturbed me, the UN NDC synthesis report, it's like looking at the climate plans of countries. It came out, uh, I think in February. I'm sure the figure might have changed a bit, but it looks at, you know, the different countries that have submitted their revised or updated climate plans. And they were saying, you know, by 2030, like it's in the next nine years, that these plants collectively will reduce emission, I think, by one percent. That's at most by one percent compared to, you know, 2010 levels. I don't want to mention a lot of stats, but what's needed or, you know, what we have been told by climate scientists is that we need to reduce emission, you know, by 45 percent. Collectively, that is, you know, all these countries collectively need to reduce emissions by 45% in the next nine years. And the plan that's in place is is going to reduce emissions by 1%. That's very alarming, you know, like, uh, as we say at the beginning, we're seeing all these impacts. And we shouldn't be experiencing things, uh, you know, like to learn our lessons. So I'm very hopeful, to be honest, at COP26. Uh, that countries will agree, you know, to collectively reduce emissions by what is required. For me, that's the first step. Of course, it's going to be really challenging to transition, you know, your economy from fossil fuels to clean energy. It's like dismantling, you know, the the whole global economic system, not dismantling. Like you you have to uh, be on a path deep decarbonization. So I don't think it's going to be easy, but if we're committed and we don't have any choice, it's not about, is it easy or it's not easy. We really don't have a choice. So to save, you know, the world, to save humanity, civilization, whatever you want to say, you know, we need to be on that path. So first thing they need to collectively agree to reduce emission by what's required. And then they need to be on that path to make it happen, you know, to, as I say, you know, to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. But in addition to that, we're talking about actually, you know, especially wealthy countries need to take the first step because, you know, we're in this situation largely because of the all this wealth that we have accumulated came as a result of fossil fuels yeah like all this development around us so they need to take the first step and also support developing countries to be on the same path otherwise developing countries also need to develop and what are they going to use fossil fuels we have the responsibility to make sure you know that they have access to renewable energy and they need a technical financial capacity. And I would say, you know, rich countries, wealthy countries have to do a lot on this. Of course, polluting countries also really need to commit reduce emissions by a large amount. And I think, you know, a second thing for me in our economy is also to question largely its consumption. And can we have... An economy that's just in pursuit of this endless growth, at the same time promotes sustainability. I I don't think that's possible. So, I think all of us need to ask this question as well because we're part of the system. No.
1: Yeah, um, you, you spoke there about um, introducing different technologies and, and and options, giving giving countries options. Um, what about carbon capture? Are are we wasting our time with with pursuing that technology, or is that that something that could be a solution?
0: Well, um there's two things to be said about carbon capture. Like firstly, there's a few different types of technologies that are proposed. There's a direct air capture, and then there's kind of carbon capture storage, which would allow you to basically continue burning fossil fuels and then trap trap the gases that are released and bury them locally underground. Direct air capture is more, you know, dispersed kind of, you know, weird yokes that basically suck the carbon dioxide out of the Atmosphere, and if you think about it, um, it's almost impossible to imagine how that kind of thing could be scaled up to make any meaningful difference. Um, And the uh, scientists are agreed that the most obvious thing we need to do is focus on reducing emissions rather than trying to kind of, you know, suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's also because it's very costly. It's cheaper to reduce emissions than it is to try to suck the emissions out of the atmosphere. So we need to focus on solutions that are affordable. Across the board for humanity as a whole, and also that don't create uh, the illusion that we can continue to burn fossil fuels. Uh, you know, so the danger is that if you include carbon capture and storage in your climate policy models that tell you how you're going to get to 2050 net zero or whatever, there is a danger that that will act as a delaying mechanism, and that would give rise to the belief that we can continue to burn gas because in a decade or so, we're going to have a way of capturing the carbon dioxide emissions from gas um, combustion. And most scientists and civil society organizations are highly skeptical of that claim and see the use of these climate models um, as being kind of, uh, you know, distorting what we need to do in the present tense. What we need to do in the present tense is reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. There's another technology as well that um, is worth mentioning, because this has been debated quite a lot uh, in Europe. And that's um, bioenergy uh, carbon capture and storage. The idea there is you basically use biomass, um, you burn biomass and then capture the carbon dioxide emissions from from that. Um, So you're not using gas, you're using biomass like woody material. And that is uh, a very dangerous policy to rely on as well, not just because it's not really scientifically worked out that you would end up reducing emissions or even drawing down more carbon from the atmosphere, but also the amount of land that it will take up. And, you know, we're, we're, we're facing into a world where we're heading into a series of constraints, what the scientists call planetary boundaries. And one of those boundaries uh, relates to how we use land. And land uh, is extremely precious and finite. Soil is extremely precious and finite, healthy, fertile soil. So we need to think about prioritising sustainable food production on the land that's available, especially in a European context where there's high densities of population and built-up settlements. We need to be starting to produce our own food sustainably, relying on less chemicals, uh, relying on less uh, intensive methods. So that's going to require more land, more crop production, and a move away from livestock farming. So we can't afford to just give over all this land to you know, biomass for inefficiently producing energy. Um, It makes much more sense to focus on developing uh, forests or growing forests as as a carbon sink and just leaving them there or using timber in other ways. So sorry to go on and on about this, but these are the kind of things that are being debated as policy solutions, and they're they're the wrong solutions. We need to focus on um, uh, emissions coming down and, again, just stopping burning fossil fuels is the first way to do that.
1: Yes, it just gets back. We get back to basics, then, don't we? And we just say, listen, yeah. the, the original um, way of, of of reducing emissions that's the most effective. And, and as you're saying, carbon capture could be almost seen as an excuse. Okay, well, that means we can get away with more, maybe, in the future if that technology is successful. But um, Naf, I'm keen to hear your thoughts um, in terms of energy. What other options there are out there?
2: So, when it comes to you know, how can we make this happen? I would say, you know, more like relying on renewable energy or, you know, whatever is available right now. We have seen like solar power or wind energy in the past 10 years. The price has decreased, the deployment has increased. So we can focus more on those types of energy instead of, you know, nuclear or now even gas is being proposed as a cleaner form of fossil fuel compared to oil and other things. But again, there's a huge emission that comes from gas. I think it's really important to focus on, you know, clean energy deployments such as solar energy and wind energy and try to avoid, you know, these other energy systems that can have negative impacts on communities.
1: Yeah, it's the same principle, isn't there? There's no way to cheat. Let's just get back to basics yeah. and get back to the original.
2: A lot of countries are focused on using uh, land to reduce their emissions. I think Sai has already mentioned it, you know, planting trees. I mean, planting trees is really important, but we cannot rely on this form of you know emissions reduction methods Uh, that's going to compromise, you know, communities' food security. And this is also going to come largely, the land is going to come from the global south or, uh, you know, from countries that are already struggling in terms of, you know, uh, promoting food security uh, or in terms of, uh, you know, adapting to the climate crisis. Um, So there are all these other ways that countries are trying to rely on And they're not going to benefit, you know, whether in terms of addressing the climate crisis, when I say all these other things starting, you know, like uh, relying on land to reduce emissions um, or using these other forms of technology to reduce emissions, some of them don't even exist. I think better to focus on, you know, uh, what exists, like deploying solar energy at a large scale, wind energy at a large scale.
0: Just going to add to that, by remember what Nath was saying a little while ago about the importance of near-term action. And, you know, it's almost impossible to envisage um, the construction of a nuclear plant, say in a country like Ireland, in less than 15 years. It takes a awful long time to develop that kind of highly complex technology. And we know for a fact that we can get um, onshore wind up and running in a matter of 18 months. Solar is even faster and offshore wind in in a matter of about five to 10 years. So again, on a purely pragmatic basis, um, it makes sense to focus on shifting to technologies that A, we're familiar with and know how to develop, and that can be easily integrated into our grid. And secondly, that are cost effective. And nuclear um, has been heavily subsidized by those countries that are still relying on it. For those countries that still have nuclear, especially in Europe, um, it probably makes sense to kind of, you know, continue (laughs) to use them rather than shift to any kind of fossil alternative. But um, there is political pressure been mounting in many countries, I think of Sweden and Germany for the last couple of decades to shut all their nuclear plants because of environmental risks associated with nuclear. So that story is not entirely benign. And we shouldn't delude ourselves in thinking that there is some one single silver bullet available that's going to address this. It's it's going to require the rollout of a lot of sort of soft technology, you know, uh, as, as well as high tech stuff, you know, but soft technology in the sense of it being affordable, low impact, easily integrated and, um, and effective. And we have it.
1: So getting back to basics, solar and wind, Naf mentioned there, in Ireland, we, we seem to have been a little bit complacent about climate change for a long time. That seems to have changed a little bit recently, but let's take the examples that NAV cited there, solar and wind. Are they incentivized by Irish governments? How does that look? Is that realistic? Is it likely? Can we be enthusiastic, optimistic about um, solar and wind um, options being, being rolled out on, on a wider scale?
0: Well, the the offshore the onshore wind story in Ireland has been successful. Um, we have quite uh, a significant amount of installed capacity. There have been some controversies, and not always terribly popular with local communities. Um, but there, the integration of onshore wind into the grid has been a success, and Ireland has a very high level of wind penetration, I think, if not one of the highest in, in, in the world. So definitely, it is a success story. Where we haven't been so, so good is on the solar side. We have been very, very slow to roll out any kind of solar schemes. They're they're starting to come on stream now, and they're supported now under the new renewable energy schemes But we still don't see solar panels on schools, on houses. And farmers have been arguing for a long time because they have kind of big uh, farm buildings that would be ideal for for solar, that it's ridiculous that they should have to apply for planning permission to put solar panels on on farm buildings. And this is one of the few areas where the environmental NGOs have been completely in support of the farming organizations. So solar does have a lot of potential in Ireland. the, the big game changer is not that we have suddenly have more sun, because we've always had enough UV light to generate solar energy, but just that the cost of panels has come down so dramatically that it is an, an affordable option. And they do have an important role to play in balancing the grid uh, with, with wind. Because very often, like we don't have much wind at the moment because of the high pressure that's over Ireland, there's not a much wind. I don't know, if, I don't see any turbines around me, but if there were, I would imagine that they wouldn't actually be moving but we could be generating electricity from from solar. So, you know, we're going to have to think about, you know, meeting our electricity needs from a variety of sources and using that excess or surplus electricity really cleverly in storing them in EVs, sort of getting people to charge their EVs when there's a surplus electricity and also battery storage solutions um, to balance the grid, especially when the offshore wind comes on stream from the West of Ireland, because that's going to be, You know, a massive amount of 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 potentially surplus electricity. So the future on the energy front, I mean, energy engineers and people who do the energy side of climate policy have worked out what the solutions are. We need lots of interconnection, so that you know wind energy can be you know moved around cross continental Europe when it's needed, to and where it's needed. So the idea of kind of these national standalone grids makes no sense in a decarbonized world. We need to think about where the renewable resources are and use them, you know, to to supply many countries and not just one country. So Ireland is in an interesting position here, even though we're off the coast of another island and far away from continental Europe. Airgrid are now proposing to develop an interconnector to France, and that will allow us to export surplus electricity to France. And of course, any imports will probably be coming from nuclear generated electricity. So that's just the reality of of where things are at but it's absolutely essential that we start to think and plan our infrastructure in a way that provides that kind of energy security and solidarity but that is and and back to the original topic that's a very first world we have the solutions but what about everybody else you know what's happening in the rest of the world are they are they you know have they got the same kind of uh, state sponsored big thinking in terms of these interconnections and large scale renewable deployment I suspect the picture is far more bleak um, outside of Europe.
1: Okay, but as you're saying there, Ireland has started to think through and started to be a bit more strategic about the long-term plan. And we've seen that recently with uh, Ireland's climate bill. Do you want to give us a bit of insight into into that side?
0: Yes, well, this legislation updates the 2015 Act, which was uh, kind of very weak in many ways because it didn't actually set any quantitative, numerical targets for for climate. It was just like, we'll do our best to become sustainable. (laughs) It was very vague. And that was the reason why the Climate Case Ireland case was successful, because uh, it was argued successfully in court that the plans that the government produced just did not specify how any of these vague targets would even be achieved. So the climate bill um, is much more precise in setting up a kind of a governance framework. So we now have a long-term target for 2050. We need to be net zero by then at the very latest. It also includes a target for 2030, reflecting the programme for government commitment to reduce emissions by 51%. And then it sets up a mechanism whereby all the emissions would have to be reflected in five-year carbon budgets that will be proposed by the minister and adopted by the Aroctus. And um, the Climate Change Advisory Council has some beefed up powers, but essentially it, it requires a whole of government approach to climate action, that everybody has to be working to the same targets, all the plans and policies, the public bodies, local authorities, everybody has to be acting in a way that helps us to get to that 2050 target and also the 2030 one. And it it doesn't include any sanctions. So if we miss the targets, there's no. it's not obvious what happens there. But There will be sectoral emission ceilings set for for, transport, buildings, agriculture and energy and so on. So there will be a kind of more granular governance system in place for ensuring that all policies are in line with the ultimate um, target set out in the
1: bill. It's a step forward, Sive. It's a step in the right direction but it's not perfect as you say there's no repercussions if those targets aren't met and those targets are a long way away as well the people making the promises now yeah. even in 2030 they might not be accountable they might not be in par and there's no there's no fines but it's still a step in the right direction i know there were some last minute amendments to the bill what were they and were they they were criticized by some climate groups what what was the rationale there
0: yeah the, the, the minister introduced a, a couple of amendments that would allow removals um, as in the carbon that's sequestered by trees in the main because land is a net emitter in Ireland so we're releasing carbon dioxide from drained wetlands and from farming on peaty soils and changes in land use settlement and all the rest of it. So mostly we're not sequestering carbon like there's an illusion out there in some sectors the farming community that you know there's a load of carbon being kind of drawn down by hedgerows and soils that would offset the emissions from livestock unfortunately that's not the case the sequestration potential is really in forestry however the minister wanted to introduce some way of i suppose tipping the agricultural sector saying yeah of course we'll count removals they had lobbied for that and so he introduced amendments in the bill that will require the budgets to reflect The the role of removals. Does it change much? My understanding is they were going to do that anyway. Uh, My understanding is the minister has promised, he promised Dr. Bamakeas that he would only allow these removals to be counted in the way that they already are in the EU and Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change accounting rules. So there's no new rules that, that are being proposed. However, he is proposing now under the bill to Uh, or the act as it is now, to uh, bring forward regulations setting out exactly how these accounting um, will work. So I, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration to say it's a major loophole, but it's definitely one of those areas where we need to watch very closely because a lot of the devil is in the detail when it comes to carbon accounting. And, you know, just taking it back to the global picture, there's a huge pressure on companies and also corporations to, you know, throw out net zero plans of one sort or another. But in fact, what they're going to do to meet those targets that they're setting for themselves is buy carbon credits from developing countries and from private projects. So we're back to a situation where companies and countries that don't want to take action on climate change are just going to buy the the efforts um, elsewhere around the world. And that is not going to deliver net zero, and it's not going to necessarily work as a form of Mitigation or decarbonization for developing countries, if their if their carbon stores are actually sold, as opposed to being retained on their own balance.
1: Yeah. So as you say, there there's loopholes and there's opportunities for politicians who make these promises to not deliver, and there's there's the opportunity for them to get away with it. Potentially, that's because people aren't educated, people don't understand, people don't maybe appreciate um, how important this is and how how crucial um, the, this whole conversation is. If politicians feel like they will be impacted, their popularity will be impacted, then that's a real threat. If they feel like, okay, it's just a marginalized um, group, I don't really need to be that concerned about their voice because it's not that strong and it's not going to impact me. Could there be an education piece here or or mobilizing just more support to to kind of drive that accountability with politicians?
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. I think that the role of civil society here is absolutely crucial. Not only do we act as kind of watchdogs, but we also provide ways for citizens to engage in, in lobbying and also in advocacy and in doing climate action. And so I I, I expect that over the next few years, um, coalitions like Stop Climate Chaos and the equivalent in other countries are going to just... Um, expand dramatically um, because we provide a forum for people to actually engage in discussion and lobbying. And when people are working together towards the same goals, we know how effective and powerful that can be. So we we are now, you know, looking towards COP26, facing into building a global movement for climate action that's, you know, really powerful and effective. And I have every confidence that that will happen because uh, people appreciate the urgency. And if there's one thing we've learned from COVID is that we need to act together because individual efforts just simply won't cut it at all.
1: Yeah, perfect. Great stuff. Um, now if I'm really keen to dig a little bit deeper into, into your role. Uh, with Oxfam and and, uh, and your work in, in climate in general. Uh, I'm really keen to hear some specific stories. I know you do some work with, uh, with farmers and climate resilience. Um, tell us a little bit about your role in general and then I'd love to hear some some specific stories about individuals that you work with.
2: Sure. So at Oxfam, you know, There are a couple of areas that we're focusing on to address these major issues, starting from emissions reduction, specifically focusing on per capita emissions, because so far, for instance, when we have been talking about emissions reduction, we're talking about a production or territorial related emissions. But there's also a huge issue to address in addition to that, which is per capita emissions, because at the global level, or even with a country, there's a huge inequality. So I work on that in terms of, uh, you know, highlighting the importance of addressing this inequality uh, in per capita emissions. Because if we don't tackle that, it's going to be really difficult to bring about a real change uh, in terms of addressing emissions reduction. I I think this work has been really successful uh, with this work that was carried out by Oxfam, I think, since 2015 to show, you know, like the gap, for instance, between rich countries and poor countries in terms of, again, you know, by highlighting the story on per capita emissions or even for people to understand within a rich country, There is a huge gap between, you know, let's say a wealthy American and, you know, regular folks in the U.S. in terms of the emissions gap. So that's one area that we really try to create public awareness at the same time, push for policy change at the global level as well as at the national level, Uh, where climate finance is also an important part that I work on with colleagues Climate finance, you know, in terms of 100 billion goal, which we think, you know, hasn't been met. So, both in terms of quantity and quality, how can we advocate on behalf of, you know, especially vulnerable countries? Because finance for adaptation is not enough to begin with, you know, even the 100 billion goal is not enough in terms of the need uh, on the ground or, uh, you know, to, to, to bring about change in terms of, you know, mitigation emissions reduction or to, to support communities who adapt to the impact of the climate crisis. So that's a major focus for Oxfam uh, for my work in terms of keeping rich countries, wealthy countries accountable to their commitment, you know, to support uh, developing countries to adapt uh, and also embark on a path, you know, the emission reduction. And then, of course, there's agriculture and then resilience. So for the specific things you asked me, I started actually as a humanitarian with an Oxfam, not working on climates. But then working as a humanitarian on the ground, let's say in South Sudan, Ethiopia or Nigeria, you see communities struggling because of drought or flooding or because of these different extreme weather events. And their capacity has been eroded. So, in terms of humanitarian work, you know, you, of course, you're responding to address the immediate needs, but in the long term, you know, what happens to these communities? And what happens when these disasters are happening again and again? And more than anything, it's not like the way we think. I feel like there's this assumption in poor countries that communities are struggling, and that's it. They're actually the most resilient people. I mean, uh, I feel like I'm generalizing. These communities are very resilient. They've been through a lot. But what got me interested, you know, on working on climate is that these disasters, the more it happens, the more it's eroding the capacity of local responders, as in like the people on the ground are the ones who respond and support each other but even they are being impacted. So the more these disasters happen, you know, what's going to happen to society and in developing countries? So this is how I got interested in in climate work and especially, you know, issues with agriculture, with hunger. Uh, And that's how I ended up working on addressing the climate crisis. But of course, you know, climate policy work encompasses so many areas. And, It's a very challenging field, but as I said, you know, I really hope we can start with the strong, you know, like community mobilization It's already happening. Everyone in the world understands the impact of climate and that we can build this movement, you know, at the global level and keep polluters, you know, major polluters, wealthy countries accountable so that we can be on the path, you know, uh, to addressing this major issue.
1: Yeah, uh, it's the working in humanitarian uh, for Oxfam just obviously kind of automatically transitions into working in in climate Uh, and and, yeah it's really interesting to hear about the, the resilience of some of the farmers that you're working with and some of the people um, that are just bearing the brunt. Uh, in the West, we talk about the resilience of CEOs and, and uh, entrepreneurs and uh, and it's, it's just laughable by comparison. But moving on, the other thing, um, uh, Saif, you mentioned COP26. It's taking place in Glasgow. Um, what usually happens at, the, at these summits and what can we expect from this one? It, it feels like these summits are always make or break, but the one that's kind of coming up is always really, really important. And then once that goes past and, you know, Things haven't quite gone the way we think they're going to go. The next one's really, really, really important. (laughs) How important, how make or break is this? Um, And what can we expect from this one?
0: Well, um, unfortunately, for anybody who wants to tune into the COP, which is easy to do, by the way, it's quite easy to follow all the proceedings, but it's very hard to make sense of what you're watching. It's really technical. uh, The agendas and the language is... um, very hard to understand. And I'm somebody who's been to four or five Cops and many of the intersessional conferences. And I can t- tell you that I wander around the corridors quite lost sometimes to trying to figure out what's actually going on.
1: Uh, world Rugby Conferences, where they have, um, like, obviously, de- like delegates from all over all over the world, different languages, and they have a translator. They have a translator booth. I've been at one of these before. Yeah. They should have a translator booth at, at COP26 that, that translate it into, like, normal people's language. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. So every day, uh, this would be worth flagging now for anybody who's attending for the first time, because obviously Glasgow is much closer, so it would be possible for lots of activists from Ireland to attend, hopefully. But the best tip would be to follow the uh, Climate Action Network daily briefings. They're usually at five o'clock where they actually do that job of try to translating everything that was going on during the day. And also the Union of Concerned Scientists are great. They are fantastic. They provide kind of a daily briefing as well. And there's also a, a, a kind of a journalistic outfit called the Earth Negotiations Bulletin that does a kind of a daily report as well on the negotiations. It's very hard to follow them because there are a lot of simultaneous conversations happening in different spaces. And then there's a lot of side events as well. So the side events are often fascinating and really well worth attending. So in terms of what is at stake, um, well, just to bear in mind that there's, I I suspect, and I could be wrong about this, um, but I'm just going to throw it out there, that there's two major issues that will be, I suppose, focus points for the talks. Uh, Unlikely that there'll be a major focus on accelerating climate ambition because every year various states have tried to introduce that and it's been squashed in some way or it's led to some kind of ineffectual uh, statement or something like that. But what's really going on behind the scenes are negotiations and big push on climate finance to get states to kind of step up their contributions to meet that 100 billion per annum goal that uh, that NAF referred to earlier. So this was a promise made back in Paris in 2015 that simply hasn't been acted on. And loss and damage is also something that gets a lot of attention. But under the rules that were devised um, at the international level, it isn't actually possible for any state to claim compensation. So that's why a a lot of the climate litigation is taking place in other arenas. It's not taking place under the Paris Agreement as such, um, because there isn't any mechanism to hold one state or one set of states responsible for the destruction uh, uh, in another or the impacts in another due to the climate change. Um, so that's another major area where there tends to be a lot of focus, but it doesn't usually lead to anything. And the third area is the carbon markets. So unlike the rest of the Paris Agreement, the, the sort of sections in the agreement that relate to carbon markets don't have a, an agreed rule book yet. And um, there's a lot of tension and different arguments being put back and forth between the different uh, parties. And it looks like um, it might come to a head again in Glasgow. But I wouldn't be optimistic at this point that there would be agreement on that. And that will be seen as another failure because uh, if the carbon market rules aren't actually established, then it won't be possible to develop carbon market um, mechanisms that work for developing countries and that uh, are at the same time grounded in proper science. You know, it's a complicated area, but it's one that they simply haven't been able to resolve since Paris. And I'm not optimistic that they will come to an agreement in November. However, it's just it's just worth pointing out, though, that some environmental NGOs think that that's probably a good thing, because if they did agree to something, it would likely to be weak and possibly damaging. So better, better that they stay embroiled in disagreement.
1: <laughs> can we can we be more optimistic about uh about the summit in general um or or moving forward uh that the US is back at the negotiation table uh and and, and how optimistic are you that Biden's the right man um for mm-hmm. the giant mm-hmm. task that's mm-hmm. facing us?
0: But it's certainly true that the United States has re-engaged with a lot more enthusiasm and commitment. But I I can tell you that even though the United States withdrew or gave notice of its intention to withdraw under the Trump administration, they were there all along and they uh, used their influence and their power in the negotiations very much as if they were a party to the agreement uh, it wasn't like they walked away. They had enormous delegations at all of the cops that I was at during the Trump uh, presidency. And there was a very lively uh, U.S. civil society presence at the cops as well. So there, isn't, there was never a national consensus, um, you know, that, that America wasn't going to do anything. It was very much uh, something that administration that were in hock to the fossil fuel industry Unfortunately. And um, so Biden's initiative uh, is very, very important. But in practice, you find behind the scenes that diplomatic positions taken by different countries don't tend to change very much, sadly. So mm. it's very likely that there'll be a major shift in the way the United States as a whole thinks about climate change, looking back over all the presidencies, even during Obama's. Um, they tend to be very conservative. They're very pro-market-oriented solutions, very anti-top-down targets. And that's just been the position of the United States all along. Mm -hmm. But what Biden can do is use his political leverage to uh, excise more commitments out of China and and, and possibly other big emitting states, because he can finally say, well, we are actually doing something now, so Uh your turn to step up.
1: Uh Sai of NAF, thank you so much um, for, for coming on today. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks for joining me on uh, Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. And thank you uh, for listening. Uh, you can post your thoughts and comments in the podcast using the Twitter hashtag #FirstWorldProblemsPod, and check out oxfamireland.org to learn more about Oxfam's work. On the next episode, I'll be learning more about Oxfam's long-term development work. Joining me will be Regis Mututu, Social Norms Advisor with Oxfam in Zimbabwe, and Rosa Brandon, Programme Quality Officer at Oxfam Ireland. Um, Thanks very much, folks, and bye for now.